You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers. Uh, all you guys out there, uh, happy to be back here in the studio. And we are talking halfway around the world today uh, through the magic of the internet and Zoom. Uh, I have on here Keith Bolfin. Did I pronounce that right, Keith? You have indeed. All right, good. So uh, I happen to listen to another podcast, and I can't even remember the name of it now, but uh, uh, I don't mind giving the competition a little uh, uh, help, but uh, I can't remember it. Uh, and he had such a compelling story that I immediately started trying to get hold of him because I wanted to hear this story. Uh, did a little research on him. He grew up in New Zealand, as you can tell uh, by the accent. And, and I don't know, Keith, is there a difference in a New Zealand accent and an Australian accent? They sound the same to me, but. Yes, there is a difference. Um, New Zealanders are a little bit different to Australians in terms, probably like the Canadians to the Americans. Right. Or even Southern Americans to Midwest Americans like myself and, and Northern and, and Eastern Americans. So, yes, exactly. But, you know, uh, kind of a get this started, folks. Uh, Keith was involved in kind of a bad casino deal. I believe he was a, uh, an accountant. Is that right? A banker, an accountant when you were young? Yes, I was. Yeah. And uh, you ended up and however this casino deal went askew and some bad people were involved in, you ended up getting three years in penitentiary. And, and for some reason, even though this is a white collar crime, you were sent to the maximum security prison at Port Phillips. Uh, and at that, in that facility, he linked up with a Mexican cartel banker named David Gomez. Now, Keith's book, Undercover, A Novel of Life, will recount uh, how he went into the cocaine business and say, take you on a trip of just how that cocaine business works on the inside. Uh, uh, it was described a, a chilling memoir that keep the readers turning pages after pages just to see what happens next. So uh, uh, I look forward to reading it myself, Keith. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Well, great. Hold, hold the book up so people can see what the cover looks like. Absolutely. There it is. Undercover, a novel of life. Tell me a little bit about, uh, let's talk a little bit about that penitentiary experience. We really want to know about the cocaine business in the United States, of course, but uh, tell us a little bit about that penitentiary life. How did you, how did you navigate that? Well, it's extremely difficult because I was in a unit uh, which was 20 inmates in that unit and 17 never to be released. They were mass murderers and um, they were in for life. And it was three bankers, myself and um, two Mexicans. But the, the, to live with these people, if you look at the wrong way, they would stab you or punch you or fight with you all the time. So every day was a struggle to survive within the unit. But being an old rugby player, I could take a few knocks and give a few knocks back. So, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I got stabbed a couple of times and beaten up a few times. But you know, that was the phase of life, and um, it was a difficult environment. But uh, we survived. So then you uh, 
this David Gomez, uh, who was a Mexican cartel banker, was in that unit, I assume, with you. Is that correct? Correct. So he was the, um, he had come to Australia under a false passport and um, he had been living under a, a false name. And he'd been under surveillance by the federal police and the state police, as well as the FBI and the DEA from the United States. As he was the major banker for the drug cartels in Mexico and Colombia. And he had fled Mexico after Fox was appointed president and he lost all his protection. And, and uh, he had fled and been a fugitive for over four years when he was captured in Melbourne. And he would live, he was living a luxurious life, pretending to be a coffee importer. And, but the everybody was watching him from the med, from the federal police, the FBI, and the DEA. And then, because I had become a friend of his within the prison system, uh, they saw this as an opportunity that maybe uh, that friendship could lead to myself becoming the next banker for the drug cartels in Mexico and Colombia. So I was um, interviewed by the DEA and and also by federal police to see whether, in fact, I could uh, build on the friendship within the prison system. Now, Gomez himself, because he had so much money, he had protection within the prison system. So one thing, by befriending him, gave me protection. So the beatings and the stabbings didn't um, continue. So that was a plus. But my knowledge of drug cartels in Mexico and Colombia was zilch. I mean, the only thing I had seen was the film Traffic. I'd never seen anything else. And I hadn't read up about them, so I was quite naive. And um, But he, he and I got on extremely well because we're both bankers. We we're both interested in, you know, the economy and how to move money around the world. And he thought I was very good, probably as good as he was in terms of where you could plant money and how you could transfer it, how you could set up nominee companies. Mm. And unbeknownst to me, he was talking to his lawyers who would, he would ring from the prison to his lawyers who would connect his phone to uh, Mexico. And he was speaking very highly of me, talking about I could be the next creative banker. And from the cartel's perspective, I was the right person because I didn't come from America or Central or South America. I came from a different country. I was coming out of a prison system, so that was a plus for them. Gomez had built a trust with me. Trust is terribly important within the cartels. If you can be trusted, then, you know, you can survive. And they also, the cartels, work on fear. So if you, when they meet you, if you're trembling and, and perspiring and, and, and you are, they can smell the fear, they say to you in, in Spanish, but in also in English, if we smell fear, we smell trust. We can trust you. Ah, interesting. And I didn't have to act that part. <laughs> you I didn't was. have to act like you were afraid of them. I understand, man. <laughs> I'd be scared of them too. Whew. 
they're not going to kill you in a maybe even a slow, horrible manner, but they kill all your family too. They do not play by the rules like the American mafia does. <laughs> but the most important thing from the cartel's perspective is that they control the cocaine market in globally. And that's a huge business. And and what they do, they, you know, the United States is a lucrative market for them. Yeah. They ship the cocaine across the border. But they also ship the cocaine down to Brazil and from Brazil across to Africa and into Europe, mm-hmm. as well as into Australia and Southeast Asia. But the business has grown. And according to the US Department of Justice, the income that these five families earn is is half a twinion it's mm. close just on 480 billion a year these guys that run these cartels they've got five or six thousand people working within the organizations but they have experts who are financial whiz kids who 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 look after their money and transfer their money around the world and i became one of them so you know i became the banker for the car, the cartels, and um, but being an undercover agent for the DEA, that's the Drug Enforcement Administration. Yeah. Now, now how, how did that work? I mean, did they help you get out of prison, or did, were you able to? You have to stay there. You did your time, uh, and then had a, a mandatory release or, or a certain time. You were now normally when you got out. Were you normally scheduled to get out, or did they help you with that? I got out on time, and you know my date of release but they were also pushing for me to get released as soon yeah. as possible and then as soon as i was released i was virtually on an aircraft to san diego then i set up a covert banking operation but the dea had already established the, a company in the british virgin islands we also set up a an office in bethesda and um in sorry not bethesda in um in San Diego, in La Jolla, I flew to Mexico to carry out the the banking operations because Gomez had been transferred back. And my test was the very first transaction. I mean, Gomez had given me instructions when I got back to, when I flew into Mexico, to have the charges dropped against him so that when he was extradited back to Mexico, he could be a free man. So that was an interesting scenario because uh, here I am completely naive of what's going on in Mexico. Arrive on an aircraft and um, met by Gomez's people, which are three cars with armoured you know, yeah. personnel. And um, then I met one of his finance guys who said my role was to finalize a transaction with the judge who was in charge of his um, his case and the oh, judge yeah. was the judge was actually in a, a penthouse in Alcapulco with his mistress <laughs> <laughs> what, kind of, what in, kind of money does that take for gomez uh, uh, to uh, fix a case like that 30 million oh, 15 million up front and 15 million when the oh, case was dropped God. Oh man, I might fix a case myself for thirty million dollars. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I know I'm Mister Deadly D right in many ways, but boy, thirty million to fi- oh my god. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, this that's just that blows my mind away. Well, you know, another question is during this time now the DEA 
you had really clandestine meetings with probably one or two agents only. And then they just turned you loose because they couldn't, they couldn't take the chance of you being seen with anybody or, or that might be identified as an agent. Is that, that is correct. Okay. That is absolutely correct. I mean, and also the fear was within the DEA, there are a lot of moles who work for yeah. the drug cartels. Oh, well, you got $30 million to throw around. You know, you could you could buy a DEA agent for probably $5 million. No offense, DEA, my DEA friends, but you could buy a lot of influence for a few million dollars in, in that culture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the hierarchy within the DEA were concerned about, you know, the possibility of a mole. And they said to me, we don't know who a mole would be. It's very difficult. So I had an Afro-American girl who was my controller and then a a supervisor and the regional director. So they were very cautious about where we met, how I met. And um, so often we meet at a Starbucks coffee shop and and have a meeting there or even go for a walk in the park and and but we would have two agents in the car who would be looking making sure we weren't followed and no one was listening to our conversation or anything like that it was a very important operation and you know to try and uh, because i was the key to their financial operations and the, the thing is, from the DEA's perspective and also from the US government's perspective, was how they dealt with their money. Where did the money go? What yeah. did they buy? What was their interest? And what influence did they have? And, yeah, they, we knew they had congressmen and senators and policemen and Border Patrol and FBI agents and DEA on the payroll. Mm-hmm. But who were they? And how many of them were they? And how, how, how did that work? Did, for example, did you, you know, did somebody get the money and then parcel it out to other people who then paid it to the different people? Or, you know, was there, there wasn't one person that paid everybody, I'm sure. But, you know, how did that work? I'm sure that's what the DEA wanted to know. Oh, absolutely. I think in terms of I didn't get to gather that information in regard to the U.S., um, but I got to be a paymaster to certain um, politicians and people in the army and the police, but mainly in Central and South America, like Brazil, Argentina, Chile, um, but also across the the border down in Belize and um, Panama and Venezuela. But in terms of the US, that was very guarded, very guarded by one person. And that was a list that the DEA were after. Also, oh, yeah, the, the the U.S. Department of Justice, you know, yeah. the Assistant Attorney General in the United States was really after that list. If somehow could get, we could get that, then we would, you know, they would be able to, that would be vital information. Yeah. But the other thing we wanted to know was, and my role was to convince the cartels to use me to manage their money. And so rather than just um, launder their funds, in other words, just launder it through and put it into their bank accounts, my role was to convince them that I could manage their funds and I was able to do that. So when I say manage their funds, I started to invest their money and invest their surplus cash into real estate, particularly in Florida and New York. But we also bought shares, blue chip shares on the stock exchange, and we also bought art. 
So, and the ob object of was to, so that when the time came for the US Department of Justice to, to make arrests, they could then seize these assets. Yeah. And one of the other things that we looked at too was to, because like the mafia had done in the past, they started to use money to buy companies to legitimize their business mm -hmm. activities. So, for example, we bought a pharmaceutical company in, in Chile. So, and so we paid off the debt, bought that pharmaceutical company, and then with the idea of expanding that pharmaceutical company by buying smaller companies in Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay, and in Bolivia. So we bought small companies and then swallowed them up into the large company. Mm -hmm. And that was the object of expansion, turning dirty money into good money, basically, washing it through this, uh, this operation. And the other aspect was buying in fast food restaurants, uh, particularly pizza parlors, um, pizza shops, but also into um, like roof steakhouses, um, uh, Haagen-Dazs ice cream, um, a Burger King franchise or a McDonald's franchise. So you, where we, it's a lot of it's cash. So you yeah, can buy. Yeah. And this, this was all in Mexico and Central America and South America. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I'm curious about one thing, Keith is, uh, I mean, I, I talked to a, a drug dealer here in Kansas city once back when I was working him and he said, Sergeant, he said, did you ever see a whole room full of money? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, I have. So, you know, we hear about this and we had some kids that, that found a house that had about a half a room full of money and they stole a bunch of it, went out and spent, bought tennis shoes and track suits and everything. And, but but so you, they get all that tens and twenties, you know, fives, tens and twenties down into Mexico. I mean, it's just pounds and pounds and pounds of money it, and it takes up a huge space. Then how, I mean, how did they then get that to you? I guess. It, it, the one thing about <clears throat> they, and the first time it happened to me was only a small amount of money first. I mean, initially I, I, I Later, I was dealing in millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But they bring along a, a, a case full of three million. It would be vacuum, vacuum packed. So okay. it's all squashed into it. So somebody had already kind of gone through it and maybe got it into bigger bills, maybe hundreds, and, and vacuum packed it and organized it before you got it. Absolutely. Okay. All right. I got you now. And then they would say to you, um, can you launder this money? Can you bank this money? Yeah, and yeah. you, and my response would be, yes, I can. Yeah. And they would say, well, there's three million in, in this. And you, 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 you would never dare say to them, I need to count it because <laughs> it was, it was exactly right. And then because I banked all their funds in Mexico. So, you know, I'm, and so it was a call back to DEA. And they would make available a banker who would help me facilitate that transaction. Okay. So I would head off to, you know, Bank of America office or, or Citibank office and mm -hmm. walk in and after hours and then the cash would be counted and I would do the transfer. Okay. And, and then, but they would leave you with the cash and you know, in your own mind, you could never 
leave Mexico trying to flee with three millions, you wouldn't get to, you wouldn't get to, wouldn't get past the front entrance of the airport. Yeah. So, and they would easily track you down. Yeah, no matter how tempting it was, it it, it wasn't worth it. You needed the government to hide you when this thing was all over. You didn't you didn't want to be trying to hide yourself. No. And even a government hide you is probably kind of dicey. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> God, this is uh, this is fascinating—a real inside look at how they do that and buying all those businesses. I guess they just—you you were setting up companies uh, down there in, in Mexico. Did you set up LLCs and uh, up in the United States? And uh, or I mean, how did they? And then they choose some of their relatives and, and friends, the people they trusted, to sit on the boards and have the higher jobs in these companies. Yes, they did, and then and also paid for people to you know what they call white knights. Uh-huh. So they would pick white knights to be okay. on. But you knew you couldn't do anything wrong. You couldn't cheat the system or right. try and you just had to run the be, business. Yeah, and run it successfully. Yeah, and and sometimes you know, like um, particularly in the pharmaceutical company, the other subsidiaries that we purchased they wouldn't know that right. it was drug money mm-hmm. and they wouldn't know, you know, they were behind the scenes. So, you know, but it was interesting. And, and also um, the ability of these drug cartel people to ring a president in, in Argentina or Chile or Paraguay to pick up mm-hmm. a phone and make a call and say oh, who really? they are. Well, that happened. Huh. I just got that unbelievable um, connection but it's all money driven. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, you know, if you're a president in Argentina and you want to, and you're going for another election, you need money, Yeah, you know, for you. And suddenly money's made available to you. Yeah. How much do you need to run your election? Yeah. Plus you figure when you leave the, leave office, you know, you want to want to have a nice life and, uh, and if they take care of business now, why, when they leave office, they're going to have a good life. Absolutely. And I think there are cases like um, 60 Minutes in Australia did a, an interview on the head of police in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the highest paid policeman in the Mexico federal police. Mm-hmm. And he had, had facilities with um, the US government and the US government protected his family. So he lived in San Diego and then drove across the border every day and ran and was the head of the police in Tijuana. And the 60 Minutes did a program on him and he was showing, you know, dead bodies from a cartel head and what arrest rate he was. And then, then he started to send his family to prestigious schools in San Diego. So the DEA said, well, that doesn't work out. This is his salary. This is what he's earning. And suddenly he's spending more money than he's earning. Something doesn't stack up. So, you know, they then plugged his phones. And, of course, then they realised he was, you know, being protected by the um, – the Tijuana cartel, and you know, and and he was earning money from them, so he was immediately arrested. But it was the DEA that did the numbers. The Mexican authorities had right. no idea. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, it's crazy. It's just gotten so big. It's bigger than the governments. From what I hear you saying, I already suspicioned that. But it, it's bigger than any of the governments south of the border. 
Yeah, I think there is a way to beat it, but you know, there is a way you could you could make a um, a serious dent uh, in their operations. And the only way you can beat criminal organisation is hit their financial. Yeah, you know, if you can upset their financial operations and cut off their money supply, then you know, because drug dealers, you know, they go out in the marketplace, but yeah. they make the simple mistakes. They deal in drugs, and then they yeah. buy the flash cars, and they got the, yeah. all the flash toys, and it, and a law enforcement officer can work out very quickly. Well, yeah. this guy's he's either in the drug trade or he's not that smart. So it's just a matter of doing your numbers. But but when they get to that level that you were dealing with, buying whole companies and and small businesses and and, and stocks and, and bonds and, and real estate, uh, I mean, there, it'd be almost impossible to, you just hope that, that they decide they want their kids out of it. And, and they, they get, they, that when they die off, then maybe the business will die off. I think, I don't know how else it, it, it would ever stop from that level. Cause they have this constant stream of, of legitimate case also. Yeah, but they can't help themselves. That's the thing. Uh, and and, and yeah. it's a greed factor. And yeah. so what they say is we're getting a legitimate business. You, you have to have, you know, it's like probably some of the mafia families in the past, you know, the, the ones that get a university education and then they become more sophisticated. Yeah. And then they work out, well, we can leave the, the drug dealing and the prostitution and the other legal activities and focus on genuine business. And you've seen that in the past. Historically, where families have been involved in dirty money and then emerged and become a, what we call white knights in yeah. society. The difficulty with drug money, particularly with the families of Mexico, is that the families that run those businesses um, have basically left school at 14 or 15, a street smart. Uh, gangsters. They love the thuggery and the beating and the, the constant fighting until that changes because the people they employ, you know, to run their operation are the elite in Mexico City. You know, guys with PhD in finance from, and one of the ones that I met, you know, he's, he was from Harvard. Gomez went to Harvard, did an MBA at Harvard. Oh. And then you've got the main guy who I met in Mexico City, he went to Columbia University and did a PhD in finance. I mean, he is as sharp as you could possibly imagine. And he's the the, the US government thinks he's worth in excess of two or three billion in himself yeah. because he's moving the money around. But he's also got protection, you know. He wouldn't want to fly to the US in the short term. <laughs> He'd be arrested at the airport. But um, crazy, crazy. So, Keith, now that one story about what happened in that hotel, uh, you got to tell that story. This was, this was crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, basically, the situation is I was undercover for a long length of time. But one thing I wouldn't do is that I wouldn't tape the conversations. Mm -hmm. And the US Department of Justice wanted the conversations taped because that was further evidence in the case of going to court. But I was reluctant because of the security of these cartels is if they find you with a taping device, then, you know, you would be executed on the spot. Mm -hmm. And taping devices can be a pen. Just like that, 
you know, you click the top of the pan or car keys where you 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 lock the car, but that's yeah. actually a recording. I've heard that in modern times when I was doing this stuff, uh, they, they were pretty big, but I've heard in modern times, they're just like nothing. Yeah. And also like this, a phone, yeah. you yeah. can have a phone where you press and then you're recording. So I wouldn't do that. So I was going, my schedule was to go to Mexico on the Monday and on the Sunday, the day before I was scheduled to go to Mexico, they had an agent who had worked in Colombia for 27 years as an undercover agent living in Miami. His name was Al. And I was introduced to him and told, and by the senior executives of the DEA, that under no circumstances was I going to go to Mexico without Al. He was the guy who was going to go down and, and record all the conversations. The difficulty was Al was an agent. He wasn't a banker, so he didn't yeah. understand banking. Yeah. And I tried to teach him within a very short period of time, but he wasn't really interested. Yeah. And, and, and how were you, you going to explain him also when you got down there? Well, that was a difficulty as well because the cartels have trust. So when you introduce a new person in, they become yeah. very oh, yeah. jittery. Yeah. And if you don't announce it, they become very suspicious. When we arrived in Mexico, which was on the Monday, Monday night, he, Al, disappeared. And it wasn't until later that I realised he disappeared to get a weapon and have a weapon. And my, my, my guess is that he went to the US Embassy and caught up with a DEA attaché and was granted a weapon yeah. um, for his own protection. But we had a meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning with two bankers for another drug cartel. And how that works is two bank uh, cartels would send a banker along who would understand what you're trying to con convince them to use your method of laundering the money. And they would then go back and tell the cartel leader, yeah, this guy's legitimate. He knows what he's talking about. It's a good idea. So when we arrived at the coffee shop, the... Um, these two bankers were very upset, the fact that I had brought Al along. Yeah, they didn't anticipate him. And they were nervous, and they were looking at him with suspicion. And then they decided to ask him a banking question, and they said to me, I don't want you to answer the question, Keith. Let Al answer this. Ah, uh, so they said to him, <clears throat> what can you tell us about interest arbitrage? And, of course, Al had no idea. Yeah. And rather than say, look, it's not my expertise, I'll let Keith answer this, <laughs> he tried to answer it and come up with something which was completely different to what oh, it really God. was. Yeah. And they said to him, you are not a banker. And at that point, a waiter turned up with a tray of coffee and said to Al in Spanish, would you like some coffee, sir? And he said, no, I don't want any coffee in Spanish, and they immediately picked up his accent of Colombian. Mm -hmm. So they said, you're not a banker, you're a Colombian, we're suspicious, this meeting's over. Mm -hmm. So there was panic by myself, and admittedly out, 27 years undercover, he was petrified. He went into the bathroom, he smashed a tape recorder, and he was like me, desperate to get out of Mexico City because we knew then where they were on to us. Mm -hmm. And it was only a matter of time before someone would come for us and then take us away and we would be tortured until such time as the truth had been revealed.
But the when we contact the DEA in San Diego, and, the, and you can imagine a room full of agents and yeah, waiting yeah. for us to call, yeah. and they said, no, you've got to go to the meeting at 2 o'clock, and we'll work out a schedule for you to get back to the US today, but after <laughs> oh, that meeting. God. And that meeting was with a major cartel leader who had $10 million in cash. So we went to the meeting. And both were petrified, but we saw all the bodyguards outside. So we knew it was someone important. Mm -hmm. And we went up into this is the uh, J Marriott Hotel in uh, Mexico City. So we went up in the lift to the in the main um, uh, room where this, where this banker, Mexican banker, who I knew quite well, and I walked in and he was sitting, it was a suite. So he was sitting at the desk, mm -hmm. the sunlight coming in over his head. So, you know, you, you were looking into the sun and because and, you were sitting in a desk with that window behind him. Yeah. To the right, there was uh, the bedroom with an ensuite and it was a small lounge where we were. He, this banker, was extremely upset that I had brought in this owl. But at that time, the phone rang, his cell phone rang, and it was the cartel leaders were on their way up in the lift. So he turned to Al and myself and he said, um, my clients are on their way. And by the way, they're two Colombians, they're brothers. Mm -hmm. And Al immediately realized that he was going to be exposed. 27 years working undercover, everybody yeah. knew him. Yeah, in Colombia, so, yeah. So he then immediately went to the bathroom. I thought he'd gone to the bathroom, you know, because he was really upset and he was <laughs> um, but he had gone to the bathroom to take get his weapon and uh, take the safety catch off. So when the Colombians come into the room, they greeted me, and I was I was perspiring like there was like I was just walked out of a shower. Yeah. And then the uh, Colombians heard the toilet flash, flush, and then they looked. They swung around to see who was coming out of the bathroom and then Al come out, but he already had his gun and he fired. Yeah. He didn't even. And and within, it's less than a second. It, it felt like less than, it, it felt like it was two minutes, but it was only seconds. Yeah. And the the Colombians reacted fairly quickly. So there was only one wounded in Clemente and myself left. The rest were dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> <clears throat> And then ringing, ringing. What do you do um, then? What do you do then? <laughs> well, it took me a long time to sort of recover. You get, it, when you go you know, out, you got all their bodyguards are downstairs. Oh yeah, I know. And and I'm ringing the DEA and saying in San Diego and saying, look, I've got a driver on my head. There, there's is, a song. It has a line that's perfect for, for this. Send lawyers, guns, and money. The shit has hit the fan. <laughs> Absolutely. I said something along those lines. <laughs> I bet. That's probably what you told that San Diego office. <laughs> so they said, oh, we'll come up with a plan. But you know, Oh, yeah. Got... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think what they really meant was you're on your own, dude. Figure it out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, and I did. I did everything um, different to what they said. Um, yeah, I don't blame yeah. you. I do, you know, when they said turn left, I turned turn right. right. Yeah. 
But I managed to get myself out of Mexico, and um, <laughs> it, it was an amazing journey how I did that. And <laughs> but you know, you can't you can't outrun the cartels. You know, they yeah. um, and as a result, they come looking for you. So even if you go into witness protection program, they find you in a very short period of time. And as I said in my um, in my book, they found us in less than 10 days mm. in a shopping. They picked us up. You see, what happens is they take your photograph and you photograph your family. Yeah. And then they send it out to an Hispanic population in the US. Mm-hmm. So with a reward. So if you, you know, you know what it's like when you go in America, particularly fast food restaurants, yeah. uh, shopping yeah. malls, yeah. there's a lot of Hispanics, yeah. cleaners, um, people who work your garden, household staff, and particularly in hotels. So, you know, within 10 days, the hit squad had arrived to eliminate us. But, you know, fortunately, the DEA and myself, we stumbled on the fact that they had pinpoint us so we we sought protection in that particular situation uh, but by the time we're hidden again this time in new york but they found us again then i realized you couldn't outrun them so i decided to go back to mexico so what i did was i'm i'm very keen on chess so i'm and and when you play chess you try and work out what the next person's move yeah. will be so in my case I found, I realized I couldn't trust the agency. There would be someone I couldn't trust. And also realized I couldn't trust the cartels, but I had to have a balance. I have to have insurance to play this game. I had to have insurance. So what I did was I decided I would protect three families in Mexico and give up two. So if the shit hit the fan, maybe the three families who I protected could protect me. Yeah. That was my sort of tra- uh, my thought. So when I went, and also uh, Gomez had been trusted me three years in a maximum security yeah. unit, and he was back in Mexico. So I flew back to Mexico City. I worked on the assumption there was a 50-50 chance I could be executed. But the Mexicans have a, um, have a policy, and so the Colombians, if you give yourself up to them, then they will only execute you, not your family. Mm-hmm. If they come after you, then they'll eliminate your extended family, not only you, yeah. your family, extended family. But you go to them. It's like, you know, you've come to them. It's a different scenario. So I went to them to convince them that I wasn't a DEA agent because I had protected three families and I had the Colombians' money. I transferred the money out of the DEA's accounts back into a certain account. So I was able to repay the Colombians and get my life back. And I was given semi-protection by the cartels, told never to come back to Mexico, but Mm -hmm. said that no one will chase you. So Mm -hmm. from my perspective, so when I wrote the book, I know that I'm no one will touch me. Oh, that's good. That's great. I just wondered about that now that you've written this book and telling these stories. But, uh, well, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're a long ways away, too. It's, uh, uh, it's not like being up in the U.S. as far as having uh, people from Central, South, or Mexico, South America coming after you being where you are. It's a little, a little bit tougher to, uh, to get something done over there, I would imagine. 
Yeah, but one point is that um, I was in a shopping mall in Australia, in Melbourne, Australia, and I saw a guy and his wife walking through, and I had to have a second look, and then I realised they were from a cartel family out of Tijuana. I met <laughs> them in Cabo San Lucas. So I followed them, and they were having an ice cream with their children. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, do I or don't I tell the authorities? And I thought, no, no. I want to live. Just so leave I it just alone. Yeah. Leave it alone. I understand. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Keith, that, these are some great stories. And that's really uh, uh, all the guys that listen to this podcast, I think, will be really interested in those details about how that money thing works. And uh, it's uh, it's quite a story. I, I know I got a, a guy that I talked to from Kansas City that was running marijuana up here for him. He's in witness protection. I think everybody from that family kind of ended up getting killed or going to the penitentiary over something. So, but he's in witness protection also, and he's staying lying low. But he told me a story about how a, a bar owner up here by Kent, close to Kansas City decided he didn't need to pay the cartel for a couple, three loads that he had gotten. They're like 500 pound loads and it's about $25,000. And and he said, they sent up three car loads, three of these big SUVs full of Sicarios and surrounded this bar that this guy owned. (laughs) And then one up went in and said, here's the deal. (laughs) You get me our, you get us our money or you are going to come back and kill everybody in here, kill you, kill your family, burn this place down. And of course, he had the money in about twenty-four hours. <laughs> yeah, that'll be right. <laughs> yeah, they they do not play, do they? So, so now, Keith, uh, you've got other stories, right? Did you do do other work with with uh, uh, the DEA? And uh, I was transferred to the FBI. Or the FBI, and, you did other things. We, yeah. we get back together one of these days and talk about Absolutely. some of that work. That would be Absolutely. great. All right. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hold your Thank hold. You, hold Hold the book back up again so guys can see that. And, and don't forget, everybody, I will put uh, I will put a link to Undercover, a novel of life. And I tell you what, it's a real page turner. So uh, these are that's we just scratch the surface of what's in that book. So if you want to know more than you could ever begin to know about how the cartels work, why well, get that book and read it. And so it's a real readable too. I read a review of it and he said it was a, a memoir of his, uh, uh, his, his uh, life that was really uh, exceedingly readable. So, uh, so we all like that. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, folks, uh, don't forget to hit me up on uh, Venmo, buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer at gangland wire, make a donation on my podcast um, on the uh, website. And uh, don't forget, you know, I've been forgetting. Uh, I haven't put talked about the uh, uh, PTSD. Uh, if you guys, if you're especially if you're veterans and you have a problem with PTSD, get hold of your local VA. Uh, they've got a website that's set up for that and, and a number. And I don't have that on me right now, but uh, that's all you got to do is Google PTSD and the VA and you'll uh, you'll find that help. Keith, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for inviting me. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.